We have a long passage. If you feel you need to sit, please sit. But we're reading Psalm chapter 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven, and there is nothing on earth that I desire but you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell all of your works. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that you give us to gather here in this place this morning. Father, we pray that you by your Spirit will move in and through and among us. That you by your Spirit will speak to us, Father. That you by your Spirit will open our hearts, lay bare our minds, lay bare our fears, our doubts, our concerns. That, Father, you will lift Christ up and you will draw us to yourselves. Father, I pray you will glorify yourself at this time and this moment. In Jesus' name. Amen. You be soothed. 
I titled this sermon, Dealing with Feelings of Doubt. During the week, I was thinking I could have titled it, Belief in the Age of Instagram. I mean, think about it. Uh, what are influencers designed to do? But to influence us to think we need more. Our life isn't good enough. Something is wrong with you because you're not like me. Uh, the reality is that, uh, that, that challenge, that struggle through life is something we deal with. Sometimes we deal it on a much deeper, darker level. Sometimes we struggle with the injustices that we see surrounding us. And some people, that drives them to do all kinds of things. In 2007, September 2007, and those of you who know that I'm a lawyer would know I would say something about the law, so I will. Anyway, in 2007, the strangest lawsuit in the United States was filed in the state of Nebraska by a Nebraska senator. He filed a suit asking the court to enjoin or to stop God from interfering with the affairs of men. That was the case of his lawsuit. He said that God has been allowed, uh, has allowed certain harmful activities to exist that have caused great harm to innumerable, innumerable people in the world. And he began to list things like plagues and suffering. And he listed on and on genocidal wars, all the things that men have done to men throughout the history. And he laid those all at the feet of God and said, God should be stopped from interfering in the lives of men. And the court dismissed the case saying, God doesn't have an address, we can't serve him. <laughs> this is a real case. This is a real story. That's really how it happened. Imagine how many people and how often do people struggle with the realities of the world as we have it and the world as we live in it. Whether it's injustices caused by one to another, suffering, sometimes Good things or bad things happen to good people, as some would say. And sometimes worse, good things happen to bad people, right? How do we deal with those feelings of injustice, those feelings that sometimes rise up and create doubt? Well, in the religious world, how do we deal with them? We ignore them, right? Because the reality is, if you're religious, if you think your acts are what result in God being pleased with you, then you're not going to admit your feelings. You're going to hide them. You're going to try and repress them and ignore them. And religious people are good at that. Repression and ignoring of, of, of feelings. And where does it get us? What about the non-religious or the, quote, secular they say, feelings are sovereign, right? My feelings are my feelings, and they are what they are, and I can't do anything about them until they change, right? Until I feel differently. Neither of those function well. The Psalms give us a third approach, which is praying through our feelings. Praying through our feelings. But in order to pray, you've got to start somewhere. And so the first principle that we see in verse 1, you got to start with an understanding of who God is. 
And so the psalmist says, truly, God is good. You sang it earlier, right? You're God, you're good? All the time? All the time? You're good. That is God, right? We know Him to be good. The Scriptures tell us. When Jesus was, uh, was approached by the rich man who said, Good teacher, what do I do to inherit uh, eternal life? What did He say? There is none good alone but God. So the Scriptures, even Jesus pointed to the goodness of God. The Scriptures tell us over and over, In Him is light. In Him there is no darkness. He is the giver of all good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Uh, so the reality of Scripture, the clarity, clear teaching of Scripture is God is good. The goodness of God is the basis upon which we can approach Him. The goodness of God is the basis upon which we can pray to Him. But He is more specific. He says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Teaching that the, the relationship, there's more than just the absolute goodness of God. He is a covenant God. He is a God who is faithful to His people. As we sang just a moment ago, He is a promise keeper. He is a covenant-keeping God. What He says, He will do. What He promises, He fulfills. He is a faithful God. And that rests in what? In His goodness. But then the psalm goes on and says, but as for me. Now, uh, as we, uh, we did earlier, we confessed our faith. If you were here last week or if you're here on any given uh, Communion Sunday, last week uh, Brian led us through Communion Sunday and he led us through the confession of faith. And he started by saying, in an age of unbelief, Christian, what do you believe? So, here, Asaph, or the writer, is engaging the principle he just taught. See, it's not enough for us to recite a creed or to memorize certain portions of Scripture. The call is for us to engage. What do you believe? How have you engaged the Word of God? Here we see the writer, Asaph, engaging him. Now, who is he? So, the reality is we often ignore that, this little first part of, of uh, the psalm telling us who it is. But if you were to go to 1 Chronicles 16, uh, you see that he is the leader of the choir. He's the leader of the worship. When, when David created the, and brought the ark to the tabernacle, it was Asaph who led in worship. And when Solomon finished the temple, it was Asaph who led in worship. This man led worship for Israel for 40 years. Long time worship leader. And he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Said, my steps had nearly slipped. So here we have somebody who's worshipped God and led the worship of God for 40 years or longer, saying, I stumbled at the thought of the goodness of God. He struggled with doubt. Doubt is a common thing. I mean, look, Ben's not here. How many of you struggle with that? Come on, the, the, the elders won't, choke, won't look. 
the reality is we all struggle. Doubt is a common experience. And sometimes, again, in religious communities, we're taught you don't doubt. We're taught you hide your doubts. That's not what we see in Scripture. How does Jesus deal with doubt? You remember the story of John the Baptist? The Scriptures tell us that when John the Baptist was in prison, he had his disciples go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one that we were waiting for? Of course, he's in prison for the man. He's been in prison proclaiming the truth, expecting the promised lamb. And at that moment, he says, are you the one? And Jesus responds to him, saying, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their, their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the death here and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In case anyone wondered if it's too harsh to say that he had doubts, the answer of Jesus makes it clear that Jesus understood that John had doubts and said, don't worry about it. Don't be offended by me. Here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. When we think about doubt, Think about who, who comes to your mind in Scripture, right? He bears the name, Doubting Thomas, right? What do we know about him? When Jesus first appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, Thomas wasn't present. And so they tell him, they share with him what happened, and they say, we have seen the Lord. But he said, what? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas said. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Jesus didn't rebuke either of them. Jesus was not afraid of their doubt. Jesus was not offended by their questions. He answered them. He answered their questions. Because doubt is natural to us. Doubt is normal to us. He did not rebuke them. He did not send them away. See, feelings of doubt are common. What created doubt in our psalm? It says in verse 3 that Asa admits that his feet nearly slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And we read the passage, and that's why I read the whole passage, so you could see what those people were like. They, not only were they prosperous and wealthy, but they boasted about it. And, then, and it, that boast led to arrogance, and that arrogance led to violence. And they shook their finger at God and says, what does the heavens know? 
Their pride was their necklace, the scriptures say. So Asaph, who's been worshiping God, and we're not told that Asaph was poor, but he's been worshiping God, and he sees the prosperity of the ungodly, and his faith stumbles. See, the thing is, doubt often masquerades as very intellectual. And most of the time when you deal with somebody, whether it's your doubt or someone else's, sometimes it's stated in a way that you feel you don't have an answer for. Whether it's your own doubt or someone else's, because doubt masquerades as intellectual. And many will say, faith is opposed to reason. However, the scriptures say no such thing. When John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you the one? He gave him reasons. When Thomas approached Jesus, he gave him the evidence. The scriptures don't say faith is opposed to reason. As a, as a matter of fact, the scriptures say, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, by faith we walk and not by what? Sight. Not opposed to reason. Faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now, those of us who've always been sighted, take it for granted. And don't realize how much we depend on our sight. And how much we interpret the world by our sight. And how often we believe that what we think we see is reality. And how often are we deceived? We pay to get manipulated by going to the movies. Right? We know they're tricking our eyes. That stuff doesn't exist. We pay them for it. A lot of money. We pay them to manipulate our eyes. But what happens? Have you ever gone on a vacation and come home to share the photographs and go, wow, it doesn't feel the same? Because you're not standing there again, feeling the breeze that you were not really conscious of, smelling the air. All the, th all the other senses that because we sighted people rely on eyesight, we miss everything else. See, the reality is, it's not faith in spite of evidence. It's faith in spite of appearances. Okay? The thing is, we get fooled by appearances. We get suckered by what we think things are like what they look like. Doubts come, this is uh, Pastor Tim Keller said, doubts come when personal experiences make what your mind knows unreal to your heart. So the reality is, doubt isn't a question of intellect. It isn't a question of your mind. It's a question of your heart. And that's why more information, more logic, isn't going to answer the question. That's why you have to deal with your heart. Psalm 73, in a passage of 28 verses, the author uses the word heart six times. Starting with the very first verse, right? God is good to the pure in heart. The, the perspective of heart is throughout the passage. So then, if it's a matter of 
heart, how do we deal with our doubts? Briefly, I'm going to just go quickly through four things. First, doubt your doubts. How many times we doubt someone else's doubt? And we ridicule their doubt, but we don't doubt our own doubt. See, we don't suspect our own motivations. We think my motivations are always honest and sincere and theirs insincere. Really? When have I had a pure motive? A good friend of mine says that all the time. He's never had a pure motive in his life. Look at what happens here in this passage. You notice when I read verse 3, I skipped the phrase, right? It said, Asa said, for I was envious of the arrogant. He reviewed his doubt, and it began as it needs to begin, a confession. I was envious. I fell to the old, the grass is greener on the other side. I saw something, and I was deceived by what I saw because I became envious. That's the first place to start when you look at your own heart is confession. When doubts start to struggle, why am I doubting? The quote I said, when personal experience takes what you know and makes it unreal to your heart. And so we can see and unfortunately, we've had to deal with a lot of pain lately and a lot of tragedy. And the reality is the heart protects itself, right? It's just it's too much. There's too many things happening to feel every one of those. But every once in a while, a personal experience hits you and you can't shake that one. Yeah. Right? That one you can't shake. And now the God is good becomes, is he? Or maybe he is to somebody else, but maybe not to me. And it's because what? Did the facts change? No, my heart changed. My heart was broken. My heart was torn. I've got pain. And now I'm seeing it through those lenses. And I go to what I know. And usually that's some comforting sin that makes me feel better. So we start with doubting our own doubts. And where do you take those? See, if you look at verse 14, actually, uh, verse 15, he says, If I had said this, if, if I had said, I will speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's saying here is, I can't take this to some younger believer? I can't take this doubt to someone else. Where do I go with it? Verses 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Yeah. Okay? Now, interesting, he doesn't use the word temple here. He's not wanting us to confuse this with temple worship or some kind of ceremony. He's talking about him and God. Yeah. I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, just as an aside, and I, you know, again, I'm not pastor here, and I don't get anything from the books, but Rich Viotis has a book here uh, about, uh, about spiritual development, and he talks about silent prayer. 
This is what he's talking about, about going into the sanctuary of God and saying, God, here's my doubt. Speak. It's taking him, taking it before him. And what happened? He said, then I discerned. See, where does discernment come from? But from the mouth of God, from the word of God, from the presence of God, from the working of God. The problem is we don't spend enough time in his presence. See, I still believe that doubt is an intellectual issue, so I'm going to try and figure it out. And I'm going to talk to anybody I know who I think is smart. And I'm going to do any research I can and study I can. The last thing I'm going to do is bow before God in silent prayer and say, here's my doubt, answer it, please. But the God who is good is always good. How, how much time? All the time. So every doubt that I can take to him, he's going to say, I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you that discernment. I, by my spirit, will speak and open your eyes and help your heart deal with what your, your head knows is true. And so, go into the sanctuary. And then verse 18. And he says, truly you set them in slippery places. Now, there's an interesting play here because he said in verse 3, my feet almost slipped. But here he's saying, they're going to slip. So compare your foothold with theirs. See, it may appear that they got it all in order. But they're hanging on for dear life and they won't let you know that. They're white knuckling it, but they won't let you know. Because they're depending on their own abilities. They're equally religious. But their God is them. The altar they kneel to is their own wisdom and their own power and their own money and their own strength. And that is always destined to fail. So that footing will always fail. Mine, yeah, what happens? I look down and I look down. Spiritual vertigo kicks in, right? If you're climbing, what do they tell you to do? Don't look down. But I look down. He says, just compare your footholds. And then he says, in verse 24, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Feel for his hand. See what happens. The moment the doubts occur, you forget all the times that he held your hand. You forget everything he's already taken you through. All the faithfulness that he's already performed. All the times he's reminded you that you're not alone. All the times that he's held you. The moment you doubt you forget that. Does it mean he's not holding you anymore? The truth hasn't changed. He's still holding you. You just don't feel it. Not aware of it. You're not thinking about it. So you feel 
for his hand. And then you're reminded that he's there. That he's holding you. And what's the, the end of the story? See, so then Asaph says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Listen to this. That I may tell of His works. See, what's the issue here? See, when, when he was going through doubt, Asaph said, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. See, Asaph forgot that's his work and not ours. And so he was struggling because his work seemed fruitless, seemed vain. And the problem is, again, his look was down. I will tell of his works. See, it is his righteousness that reminds us of the goodness of God. When we go back into verse 1 and we say, God is good to the pure in heart. Who are those? Those are the ones who trust in him. Those are the ones for whom Christ has died, whom Christ has washed, whom Christ has forgiven, upon whom he has imputed his righteousness. We come before him and can rely on a good God, not because somehow we've worked hard to keep our heart clean, but because he's done it for us. He's already paid it all. He did everything that we needed. The facts haven't changed. It's me. It's my heart. Now, I don't say that to make it sound insensitive. Many of us, many of you, have had personal experiences that rock you to your core. Those experiences are real. Your pain is real. The doubt is understandable. But he's not afraid of it. He can handle it. And he's good to his people. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. He is the God who keeps his word. He's the God who can restore what your head and your heart feel into integrity. So you can walk knowing that that God you're walking beside, he is holding your hands. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you that we can rely on your goodness that never wavers, on your word that remains true, on your works that are perfect and pure and always good, on your continued faithfulness and continued strength. Father, we know you know the life we walk through, the pain Many in this room and many of our friends 
walk through and suffer, and the doubts that sometimes rise up when those personal experiences shake at the core of their heart. I pray by your Spirit, you will meet them in the sanctuary. Father, by your Spirit, you would give them discernment. By your Spirit, you would alive and again the faith that has been shaken. Father, strengthen us by your presence. Fill us with your Spirit. Glorify your name in our midst, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.